The famous basketball coach at UCLA, born here in Indiana, John Wooden, said, the most important thing in the world is family and love. Knowing how Coach Wooden was so strong in his faith as a Christian, I know that deep inside that was also the inclination of God's family as well. The most important thing in the world is God's family and love. And some of you may be saying, oh, God has a family? I, I didn't realize God has a family. Yes, he does. And this is our weekly family reunion right here in this building. You see, we, the church, are his family. The church is described throughout scriptures in a lot of different picturesque ways. We are called the bride of Christ. We are called the army of the Lord. But my favorite is the family of God. And I like that for several reasons. The word family denotes a sense of belonging, support, and encouragement. Now, I realize that some families don't work that way, that, that, that are, those are not the qualities that sometimes inhabit the home. But that's the design, God's design, that it would be a place of belonging, support, and encouragement. And families are composed of all different types. It is amazing to me how children that are born of the same parents and grow up in the same environment can look and act and be so utterly different. You notice that? Sometimes families look like cookie cutters. Other times they look like a patchwork quilt. They're all over the place. But that's family, and family has a special role. So the question is, how do you end up in a family? Well, generally speaking, there are three ways that you end up in a family. The most obvious is that of birth. You are born into a family. That you are the composite of two converging genetic lines and the environment in which you were raised. Secondly, you could be adopted. For reasons perhaps unknown to you, you weren't raised by your biological parents, but rather were chosen to be a part of a family who wasn't stuck with you, but chose you to be a part of their family. In most cultures, an adopted child has all the legal rights and privileges of a naturally born child. You're really in the family. And thirdly, a person might choose to be a part of a family. So, oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. I know, of, I know of cases where, and it may happen through a friendship in childhood, that your friend's family operates more like a family than your own. And you are drawn to spend time in your friend's house and with your friend's family because they become to you more of a family than your own natural kin. That's sort of choosing a family. Uh, the most uh, logical way to choose a family is to get married. When you get married, you choose your spouse's family. You become a part of that family. And I know cases where in-law relationships become stronger than actual blood relationships. It is a chosen family. Now, here's what I find to be absolutely awesome about the family of God. That in the scriptures, all three of these are spelled out in detail with regard to the family of God. For instance, Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, and it went like this in John chapter 3. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom without being born of water and the Spirit. 
Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So God says, you want to be a part of my family? You are born into the family. Ah, but the imagery doesn't stop there. Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus in chapter 1. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to what? Adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God says, you don't like that born image? All right, I adopt you into my family. There's more. Thirdly, we have a choice. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls to him. A little bit later in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus paints this beautiful picture of standing at a door. And this is what we read. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus said, I'm here. I'm ready to be a part of your family and life and you to be a part of my family. I'm knocking, but it's up to you to make the choice. Open the door. All three, birth, adoption, choice. And... In every case where someone comes into the family, there is a moment of celebration. I remember well when both of our daughters were born. Back then, uh, ultrasound science was, um, well, it was just starting. And I could never see anything on those grainy black pictures of the ultrasound. And so we didn't know who was going to be joining our family until the doctor proclaimed, you have a daughter, and the nurses all smiled. And Elsie and I held our daughters for the first time and celebrated with great joy. We still do celebrate with great joy. And then there is that moment in the adoption process when the judge signs that mountain of paperwork and the child becomes legally and loved part of a family. Again, there is great joy and celebration when the adoption is complete. And I have yet to preside over a wedding that is sad and angry. <laughs> there may be just such an animal. I just have not had that privilege yet. It's because weddings are joyous occasions and you get excited because you know you're going to get a new member of the family. I have two sons-in-law, but I do not think of them as in-laws. I just think of them as my family. You see, in every case, there is a moment of celebration and joy. So does God have a moment like the first cry of a newborn, or the state seal applied to the adoption papers, or the words, I now pronounce you husband and wife, welcome to the new family? I believe he does. Not because God necessarily needs it, but because we need it. And we need this moment of celebration. I believe God's family celebration occurs at baptism. And let me tell you why. Baptism symbolically is like a natural birth. It is also like a change of relationship in adoption. And like a marriage ceremony, it unites two lives together. And it is unique that 
in our spiritual journey, unlike anything else in our spiritual journey, baptism happens once. I was born into this world once. You are adopted into a family once. You marry that person once. You may have birthdays to celebrate the anniversary of your birth. You will have anniversaries to celebrate the day when you said, I do. But you're only born once. You're adopted once. You are married to that person once. You are baptized once. We celebrate this coming into God's relationship and his family, but it only happens one time. Baptism is God's welcome to the family moment. Now, the Greek word from which we get our English word baptized means to dip, plunge, or immerse. That was the practice that we find in the New Testament as believers were baptized in bodies of water where immersion could happen. The Ethiopian's baptism in Acts chapter 8 describes him as going down into the water and coming up out of the water. You see, there is something about that picture of passing through the water that holds great significance in all of God's story. And while there is no baptisms in the Old Testament, that's a New Testament picture into Christ, you see. While there are no baptisms in the Old Testament, do you know that God started painting this picture at the very beginning of time? God is preparing us for this ultimate passage in life. In the opening verses of the creation account in Genesis, we read in Genesis 1, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in verse nine, in seven, or in verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. And then on this dry ground, life began to explode in God's creation. It was as if... God is saying that through the water comes new life. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Creation itself, you might say, began with a baptism. Six chapters later, God commands Noah to build an ark and to gather his family and a sampling of the creation because he was going to send a flood and start this process over again. Now, I've often wondered, why did God choose a flood? God could have used all kinds of things to, to transform this world. Uh, he, he could have destroyed everything with hurricane-force winds or wiped out everything with a global virus or swept across the globe with a raging fire that consumed everything in its path or eliminated everything with a meteor, meteor strike. And yet, God chose a flood why? Well, it's as if God is saying that through the water comes a cleansing and a new birth, a second chance. Even Peter uses Noah as an illustration of our baptism in his letter to the early church. Then over in Exodus, Moses and the recently released Israelites find themselves in a bind. They are up against the Red Sea. There are, there are mountains on either side and there is the Egyptian army coming down behind them to recapture them, to take them back into slavery. And while God holds off the Egyptian army, Moses holds the rod or the staff of God out over the Red Sea and the waters begin to part. And so you have a wall of water on this side and a wall of water on this side and the cloud of God's presence above them and they pass through the sea to the other side. And when the Egyptian army enters into the Red Sea, 
following after them, the walls of water collapse and destroy them. And the Israelites are told they will never see the army of Egypt again. Paul says in Corinthians that they were all baptized into Moses as they passed through the sea. It's as if God was saying that through the water comes true freedom. That your slavery is gone forever. You are now free in God. Through the waters of baptism, our slavery to sin is once and for all buried. And we are free in Christ. In the book of Joshua, 40 years after this release through the Red Sea event, the Israelites come to the banks of the Jordan ready to go over into the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants so many generations before. The, Red, the, the, the Jordan is at flood stage. It is as impassable as the Red Sea had been 40 years before. And yet God does the same thing. He rolls back the waters of the Jordan River. They cross over on dry land. And it's as if God is saying that through the waters comes the promise of new hope and a new home. Do you see how the story is progressing and how God is painting the picture? You know what it's like to thumb through an old photo album and you see pictures of family members and all of a sudden the memories just come flooding back. May I suggest to you that when John came preaching out in the wilderness and the, and the Israelites started coming to him to be baptized in the Jordan, not in the Sea of Galilee, not in other, some other stream or creek, not in some other pond or lake, at the Jordan River. That it's like going through the family album. They're saying, oh, wow, what a cool place to do this because so much has happened here at the Jordan. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan as if to look back to creation and to the power of the flood and to the crossing of the Red Sea and to when the Israelites came into the promised land. What a beautiful pageant is spelled out in these pictures. And when we are baptized, we join the pageant of the ages. This is not, no small moment in time. This is not some mere ritual. It is our personal participation in an eternal story that began with very creation itself and culminated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright again states, that's... That is why from very early on, Christian baptism was seen as the mode of entry into the Christian family and why it was associated with the idea of being born again. So it is my hope this morning that if you have never been baptized for whatever the reason, that today, that today you'll make a commitment to honor the Lord's command and the Lord's own example to us and do exactly that, to be baptized into Christ. Now, you know we do baptisms any time of the day, any time of the week, any time you are ready. But, but today, I just want you to lay aside the excuses you've been thinking about and using all these years and say, what is keeping me from doing what God wants me to do? Now, for some people, the, the whole act of baptism is a really, rather baffling kind of thing. Especially if you would happen to be here this morning uh, for the first time, you've not been in a church service where you've seen a baptism or, or, or anything, or if you were watching the video early on, you think, that is the strangest thing I've ever seen. These people are getting plunked down into a tank of water and they come up happy. What's with that? <laughs> now, now, I really understand what you're saying. I mean, it, it does not make sense. It doesn't quite equate, I mean, this is hard to compute until you understand the symbolism, the power behind that particular event. Which is why, folks, 
I so love this passage in Romans from the pen of the Apostle Paul when it comes to baptism. Romans 6 is one of my favorite passages regarding this. And it begins in verse 3. It says, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We've been freed from that slavery. We've been given a second chance because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now here's, here's what you miss if you, if you don't understand the story behind it. When a person starts back into the water, you probably saw it on the video, you, it, it, almost everybody did the same thing. They closed their mouth, they held their breath, their eyes went closed as the water surrounded them. They don't hear very well. Arms were folded up over their chest. They are horizontal instead of vertical. They are the picture of a corpse. Under the water they go, the water closes over, it becomes an instantaneous grave. You lift them up out of their burial. And their eyes begin to open and they begin to breathe and move and it's as though they've experienced a resurrection. A death, a burial, and a resurrection. And all of the sudden, this strange and unusual event takes on new, everlasting meaning. It is the place where we meet with the Lord at his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I doubt that you felt it when you were baptized. I didn't feel it when I was baptized, but something monumental happened in that moment. I died to sin, and I died to sin's allegiance and to the things of this world. And when somebody dies, there's a burial. And so in those moments, we bury the old, we bury the past. Now, what does it mean to die to sin? It means there's a change of our loyalty and allegiance. It means that we start doing the right thing. The godly thing becomes our priority. Doesn't mean, folks, that we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means our direction has changed. It means that we strive to avoid the people, places, and things that would tempt us most. It means that we are now walking toward the light, not toward the darkness. It means that sin no longer has dominance in our lives. And again, I still sin. Uh, you still sin. I, uh, I, when, when I was baptized, I didn't become sinless. I certainly didn't become perfect. You know, I make... I make a whole lot of mistakes in the eyes of God. But I'm, I'm counting on the fact that sin no longer dominates. That it is not the master of my life. That Jesus is the master of my life even though I stumble and fall. When a U.S. president issues a pardon, it does not change the guilt of the person that is pardoned. It only changes his standing with the law. All charges are gone. When I am forgiven, it doesn't change me from a guilty person to an innocent person. It just changes my standing with the Father. I am now a part of his family because when he sees me, he sees the blood of his son that covers my life. The Apostle Paul says that when we are baptized, we crucify the old life, and our relationship to sin is buried once and for all. Baptism doesn't make us sinless, but it changes our standing and dismisses the charges that sin holds against us forever. 
Now, do not think that baptism is some meritorious work or deed. You're not going to do this and say, oh, aren't I good? It is completely passive. You cannot baptize yourself. It is something that is done to you. In like fashion, you cannot crucify yourself. Crucifixion was something that was done to you. And so this beautiful picture is, an, is a picture of submission. In Romans 6, Paul says we are united with Christ in baptism. That literally means that we are grown together like a branch grafted into a tree. Folks, we do not have to have a piece of the original cross to feel close to Calvary. Every time we witness a baptism, we are seeing that pageant played out over and over again. I cannot remove my own sin. You cannot remove yours. Only God in heaven can do that. That's why I can only submit to being crucified. I can only submit to being baptized as he washes away my sin. I've shared this story before, but it, it is worth repeating. Sam Houston of uh, our nation's fame, uh, his moral life was, well, suspect at best. He was known for his fierce temper, his womanizing, his, his excessive drinking. And yet, Sam Houston was able to lead the Texan army to Texas independence. He served as the first president of the Texas Republic. He served as first governor when Texas became a state. Later in life, he married a committed Christian woman and, and he became a believer himself. When Sam Houston was baptized, someone said to him afterwards, well, General, all of your sins have been washed away. To which Sam Houston replied, if that be so, God help the fish down below. <laughs> now, we know that our sins do not pass into the water. Sam Houston understood something pretty profound. That he was and had been a great sinner. But that all of his sins were forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he was a new man, born again, given a second chance at home in the family of God. This is not to suggest that salvation is found in the act of baptism. It is not as if the deed by itself is enough or that there's something extra potent in the water that scrubs the soul. Our slogan is not, once baptized, you'll be sanitized. That's not it. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of our sin. However, it is in the one-time act of baptism where we identify with that very event. In the book of Acts, the history book, the church's history book, baptism always followed immediately on the heels of a person's profession of faith and their acceptance of Christ as Lord. But I believe the biggest struggle for most of us is the submission part. I don't think it's the water. I don't think it's even doing it publicly. I, I, I think our biggest problem is the submission part because when I am baptized, I, I'm basically saying I'm no longer in control. I am surrendering my life to the hands of God the Father through Jesus Christ. And I'm not real, I'm not real good with submission. I like, to, I like to be in control of what's happening in my life. I, I bet you're kind of the same way. This submitting business is, is, is tough stuff. The best illustration I can think of to, to tell you is that, you know, I have had a few surgeries in my life. Some of you have had some surgeries in your life too. 
And there is this brief moment between the time that they give you this happy juice and you fade off into oblivion that you realize in another heartbeat, I'm going to be completely out of control. My life is in the hands of the surgeon. You can't do anything. I think that's what it's like to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. We turn over control of our life to him. By the way, some surgeries are life-saving, but you have to submit to the surgery before your life is saved. Surrendering your life to Jesus Christ is life-saving, but you have to turn over control to him, and that's the hard part. So let me sum it up like this. Baptism is a consistent, one-size-fits-all act of submission in which every one of us can participate. Baptism in that moment, we are reborn, chosen, loved, washed, adopted, set free, crucified, and promised an eternal home. We are identified as God's own, and then we are assigned a place in his family. So the question that may be arising in your mind is this. Should I be baptized into Jesus Christ? And my answer is an enthusiastic yes. And when you do it, you should do it with an enthusiastic attitude and a spirit of excitement, not with the roll of an eye or the, I guess if I have to, I'll do it kind of attitude. It should be one of the most joyous and exciting moments of your entire spiritual journey. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if you want to follow him and surrender your life to him, but you haven't been baptized, then I'm convinced God wants you to do that. And there's no time like the present. There's no time like that. We try to make it easy. The water over here is warm and clean. We got chemicals in it to keep it clean. My grandparents used to talk about stories of breaking the ice on the farm ponds to baptize people in the winter. That's real surrender, let me tell you. <laughs> we don't have to break the ice over here. And then I hear the proverbial stories about people who are baptized in the river and the preacher lets go and they get caught in the current and swept downstream. <laughs> There's no current in the baptistry. We try to make it easy. And then we make the whole issue so much harder by asking questions that really don't matter in the long run. Questions like, is baptism necessary for salvation? Or what if a person is stuck in the desert and there's not enough water to baptize them there before they die? Or at what moment, at what precise moment is a person saved? Does it, does it matter? I mean, without knowing the mind of God and the heart of the person who's baptized, who can answer those questions? Let me see if I can explain it this way. If you're stuck on the third floor of a burning building and someone sees you there, calls 911, and the dispatcher receives the call and calls the fire station, and the fire station sends out a truck and a ladder crew, and they lift up the ladder to the third story window, and a fireman races up the ladder, grabs your hand, and helps you out and gets you down to safety, You've gone from certain death to certain life, and you don't ask the question. Now, I wonder, at what moment was I really saved? When they called 911? When the dispatcher called the fire, fire department? When the fireman loaded the truck? When the engine of the truck started? When the bell started ringing, they raced down the street? When the ladder went up to the third story? When the fireman went up the ladder? When I came down the ladder? Who cares? It's because you, are, you know that through this moment, your life is forever changed. The real question is not who, how, where, 
what? The real question is, when? When can I be baptized? The Ethiopian in the chariot with Philip said, here's water. Why can't I do it? And Philip says, if you believe, you can. And they went down in the water, and he was baptized. What a great example to us. And I guarantee it'll be one of the most memorable moments of your life. I remember as if it were yesterday. I was 12 years old. It was April the 2nd, 1967. There's a lot of things I don't remember from my 12th year of life, but that one is indelibly imprinted in my mind. I will never forget my home preacher, Brother Elsoff, baptizing me into Christ. I have on this hand a worn and somewhat battered and scratched up wedding band, but I look at that ring and it reminds me of June 4th, 1977, when I pledged my life to Elsie and she pledged her life to me and we became a family unit. I don't take the ring off. It's been there through the ups and the downs, the highlights and the lowlights of life because it is a reminder to me that we made a commitment and we have stuck with that commitment. When you reflect upon your baptism, as you declare your commitment to Christ, it is a constant reminder that he is with us through the ups and the downs of life and through the thick and the thin of it all, he will be with us because in baptism, we are united with him, grown together. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.